podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast on Monday, the 4th of April, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Check out LibertyShield.com and use the code EPL25 to get 25% off at checkout, be it the hardware or software packages. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks, we had a strange weekend in the Premier League. It began on Saturday with... Two straightforward results. First up, Liverpool 2, Watford 0. Liverpool didn't play particularly well, but still ran out comfortable winners. Goals from Diogo Jota and a Fabinho penalty, giving them the lead, the the victory. Thiago Alcantara, without question, the best player on the pitch. Watford did have a couple of decent chances, but VAR would likely have ruled both of them out if it hadn't been for Alisson Becker saving the chances in the first instance anyway. Liverpool went top after this, but it was only for a couple of hours. Manchester City defeated Burnley 2-0. Burnley had the first big chance of the game, a Josh Brownhill header from the edge of the box. I don't know if you'd call it a big chance, but it was a decent chance that sailed just wide. Then City just opened the game up and took control. Kevin De Bruyne on five minutes after great work from Raheem Sterling and Ilkay Gundogan. On 25, again, Raheem Sterling, the creator of the chance there. This was fairly run-of-the-mill for City. They never really had to get out of second gear. They had a couple of good other, other good opportunities. Gabriel Jesus hit the post. Nick Pope made a couple of decent saves. City looked very, very comfortable. And that sets up Liverpool versus City next weekend. Second place Liverpool travelling to face first place City at the Etihad in what should be a really good game. I won't say it's a season-defining or a title-defining game unless City win. If City win, I think that's it over. But a draw or a Liverpool win, and I think it's still all to play for through what will then be the last seven games. Then things got a little bit weird in the league. Uh, Chelsea won, Brentford four. Chelsea won, Brentford four at Stamford Bridge. Chelsea lined up with a back four. Azpilicueta, Thiago Silva, Antonio Rudiger, Marcus Alonso. I've been saying all season, Thiago Silva and Antonio Rudiger should not be considered among the elite in the Premier League when it comes to central defenders because play them in a two and they can't get it done. This was a prime example of not being able to get it done. Now, Rudiger scored the opener for Chelsea, and fair play to him, it's an absolute worldie. 
shot from about 25 yards out that gives David Ray no chance. And then Chelsea just fell apart. Their defence was calamity, absolute calamity. Janot equalised on 50. Christian Eriksen made a 2-1 on 54, getting on the end of a counter-attack. Janot on 60 made a 3-1. As Chelsea's defence was just... To say it was at sixes and sevens would be doing it too much credit. It was a dumpster fire. Silva was all over the place. Rudiger seemed to have no interest in actually defending. And Brentford just cut them apart time after time after time. Ivan Tony dropping in, picking up the ball, finding runners, and Bomo running off the back of Chelsea defenders, Janolt and Eriksen just breaking through time and time and time again while Norgard held the midfield. Rorslev and Rico Henry overlapping. It was it was fairly strange to see Chelsea carved open in the manner they were carved open in time and time again. But it came down to the back four on who those two centre-backs were. Um, Johan Wiese made it 4-1 in 87 just to cap it off. A brilliant win for Brentford, one that I think keeps them in the division now. I don't think they're in the relegation discussion anymore. That's three wins out of four. They found some form at the right time of the season. And for Chelsea... It means that they're dragged back into the the battle with the group below them. I still think they'll get third. I don't think there's any risk of them falling out of the top four, but you just never know. They're five points clear of Tottenham. They've one game in hand. That's against Arsenal. They're five points clear of Arsenal. Arsenal's game in hand on them is tonight. That's Crystal Palace. If the Gunners win, they're only two points behind Chelsea with the same number of games played and that game to come against Chelsea. So you just don't know how these things will work out. Chelsea have looked comfortable as a top four team all season, but that was a shambolic display. That was the first time Thomas Tuchel's defence has really looked like it wasn't fit for purpose. There's been other games, like we remember West Brom last year and that, where they just didn't play particularly well, but this was this was different. This was them getting badly exposed time and time again. And he has to go back to playing the back three. He cannot risk going forward with a back four. I don't know why he didn't bring Andreas Christensen on. I really don't know what the logic was there. But he has got to get that back three going again. And Christensen has to be part of it because he's the best centre-back at the club for the time he remains there. Brighton nil, Norwich nil. This was an amazingly one-sided game in which Brighton had 31 shots, Norwich had six and didn't have any on target. Neil Mopay put a penalty about as far over a crossbar as he can possibly do from 12 yards. He squandered a couple of other decent chances. Danny Welbeck squandered a good chance. McAllister had a decent chance. Just wave after wave of Brighton attacks while Norwich did very little. And yet Brighton still couldn't manage a goal. It wasn't like Tim Krul made a string of world-class saves. He made one incredible save from Joel Veltman. But other than that, everything was very, very routine for him. 
going the opposite direction, Norwich had little to offer. The only good chance they had was right at the end where Timo Puki broke down the right-hand side and clipped across to the back post to Rashika, who skewed his shot over the bar. You could play that game out 10 more times and Brighton probably win them by an average of three goals. That this ended nil-nil was really, really strange. For Brighton, though, they'll take the point that ends their six-game losing streak, keeps them 13th in the league. They're now one point ahead of of Brentford, who've obviously made up a good bit of ground in recent weeks. Norwich also ends their run of six straight defeats, but they stay bottom of the division, three points behind Burnley, four behind Watford with the same number of games played, and seven behind Everton with two games left, two games more played. Norwich are done. Brighton have got to make signing a striker their priority in the summer. It looks like Yves Basuma probably will leave. Contract up in 2023. Unlikely they let him run into the last year of that. Even more unlikely that he'll sign an extension. Take that money and go big on a striker and another centre-back. Get Cucurella back out as a left wing back. Get a centre back in to go with Duncan Webster. Get a striker in to play with the likes of McAllister, Trossard, Mope, and all the, the rest of the kind of second striker wide forwards that they've got there. They need someone that can lead the line and get them 15 to 18 goals in the Premier League. Can't afford another summer without getting that striker in. Uh, Leeds won, Southampton won. Bit of a controversial opening goal for Leeds, where it looked like Rafinha ran the ball out of play before cutting back for Jack Harrison to finish. Some of the Southampton players looked like they stopped running, but the goal was given. The replay showed it was still in play, but Southampton still had plenty of complaints about it. Saints equalised through a great James Ward-Prowse free kick. Uh, A draw was a fair result in this, though Rafinha had a good chance to win it for Leeds. Leeds are 16, five points clear of Everton. Now, Everton do have three games in hand, but they're eight points clear of Watford, and Watford only have one game in hand. You'd imagine Leeds should be fine. Seven games left. They probably only need to pick up three or four points, and they should be able to do that, all things considered. For Saints, they're 11th level in points of Villa, same number of games played. Their issue's been they've drawn too many games, similar to... Palace and Brighton below them and indeed Burnley in the bottom three. They've just drawn too many games. Um, They haven't been able to score enough goals, which considering they spend a lot of money on Armstrong in the summer is a bit disappointing. They also have Broye in on loan. I assume they keep him, but they've got to get Armstrong up and running for next season. He's too good to only score two goals in a season. This was an exciting game. Good end-to-end football, good high intensity to it. Lots of shots, some good saves. Melier made one great save uh, that's worth mentioning, but yeah, fairly well balanced. I think Leeds have shown in recent weeks they can match these mid-table clubs because I think Leeds really should be a mid-table club. If it wasn't for the injuries that they've suffered, I think Leeds would be in that mid-table mix, probably in the lower end of it. They'd probably only be maybe two or three places higher in the league but they're better than what we've seen. Wolves 2, Aston Villa 1 was the final 3pm kickoff. 
Wolves went one up through Johnny Otto. Great finish on seven minutes. Ashley Young doubled their lead with an own goal on 36. I still don't know how he managed this. It seemed like he tried to flick a header clear and managed to either head it onto his own shoulder or miss it with his head and just catch it with his shoulder and rifle the ball into the top into the top corner of Emmy Martinez's net. But that's what happened. It came off his shoulder and flew into the net when he really should have been clearing it away simply. Uh, Martinez made one incredible save. Uh, Fabio Silva caused Tyron Mings all kinds of problems. Then Villa started to play their way back into it, and Jose Sa made a great save from Leon Bailey. In the second half, then, Ollie Watkins missed a couple of good chances. And then he scored a penalty in 86. And if anyone can tell me what the penalty was given for, I'd love to know. Sa comes out, is about to catch the ball. Watkins comes across. Now, Watkins gets to the ball first, but Sa has already committed to the act of catching the ball. And Watkins just runs into him. I really don't know how or why that's given as a penalty. Watkins steps up, knocks in off the posts, 2-1 Villa. They probably deserved a goal in the game, but Wolves were the better team and deserved the win. Wolves' victory keeps them eighth, but keeps them in touch with the teams above them a bit better. Uh, They're now only two points behind Manchester United. United do have a game in hand. Three points behind West, sorry, two points behind West Ham, same number of games played. They're still in the mix. They would need other teams to fall apart a little bit to get top four. But a Europa League spot, not outside the realms of possibility. At the very least, they'll be hoping for Conference League for next season. They've got a 12-point gap to Leicester, who are ninth. But Leicester do have three games in hand. We'll see how they do in those. They're 13 points clear of Villa and they've established themselves as very much the dominant force in the Midlands. This was a good Wolves performance, even without Ruben Neves, who's been so important for them this season. No Neto in the starting team either. No Raul Jimenez because he was suspended. Eight Nuri on the bench. So a lot of their better players sitting out for this one. Interesting to see Willie Bolly come back in. Max Kilman switching from right-side centre-back to left-side centre-back, where he's probably going to be more comfortable long-term. But um, credit to Wolves. And nice to see Johnny Otto back and scoring, uh, given how long he missed with that knee injury. The late kickoff then on Saturday was Manchester United 1, Leicester 1. Gary Neville described Manchester United's performance as like watching Soccer Aid, which fairly accurate, fairly accurate. Ianacho put Leicester 1-0 up on 63 minutes. Well-taken goal, good header after great work from Dewsbury Hall and a good cross by him. United went straight back up the pitch. Bruno Fernandes' shot was saved by Kasper Schmeichel. Fred was the first to react and he knocked it home. And then Leicester scored again. James Madison after some decent work by Ian Acho on the edge of the box to win the ball back, it broke to Madison and he finished past De Gea. VAR intervened and it was ruled out. And I have to say, I think this was the right decision. I do think Ian Acho fouled Varane. I think he dragged his leg back and I think it is a foul. I think the right decision was made. Leicester fans are furious about it, but 
I do think the right decision was made. Leicester probably deserved to win the game on the balance of play. I thought they had the better chances. De Gea made one absolutely sensational save and a couple of other good ones. Whereas United's chances were more half chances, snatchy type of things, and you weren't really all that impressed by anything that they did. The centre-back pairing of Varane and Maguire just continues to be a calamity, an absolute calamity. There's nothing good about that pairing and nothing that suggests that's a pairing to continue moving forward with. Paul Pogba was desperate again. Uh, Ralph went with this Bruno up front on his own nonsense. It, it just, none of it worked. None of it worked. Marcus Rashford came on, had no impact on the game at all. And it once again led to the talk of what should Marcus Rashford do? And as I've said, I've planted my flag on this. I think he should look to leave this summer. I do think he should look to leave this summer. Marcus Rashford hasn't just become a bad player. I think Marcus Rashford's a very, very good player who's hit a rut and maybe hit a wall in his development. And United are not a club that develops players well once they hit that senior team. I think he needs a move. Now, if they get Ten Hag in, if they get Pochettino in, maybe they can revitalise him. Maybe Pochettino will use him similarly to how he used Young Men's Son and get more out of him. If he does, then great. If Ten Hag comes in, He's a well-known developmental coach. So, you know, we've seen him have big impacts on players later in their careers, like Dusan Tadic, find creative ways to use them. But Marcus Rashford hasn't just become a bad player. And I think if you put Marcus Rashford at Liverpool or at Manchester City under a Klopp or a Pep, I think they get him back on track and, and find a new level for him. I think he's immensely talented. He's a great human being as well. And I think he needs to make a big, big decision about his career. If he does leave, he needs to pick his next destination very carefully, though. He can't just agree to a move just to get out of United. Like, he can't just do what Delhi Ali has done. Delhi needed to leave Spurs, but going to play for Frank Lampard was not the move. United have slipped now to seventh in the table, no longer in the top six. They've conceded the most goals of anybody in the top eight. They have the second lowest goal difference of anybody in the top eight. And for a team that had title-winning aspirations after a big summer spend, it's, it's all gone about as badly as it possibly could for them this year. Uh, no Cristiano at the weekend. United fans, or well, more, more Cristiano fans, which are a separate group to the United fans, trying to claim that they've had, you know, title-winning form with him in the team when nothing could be further from the truth. Oh, but he scored the most goals against the top six this season. This season. No goals against the top three. Uh, four of his goals came against Spurs, uh, three of them in one game. Let's... You know, let's calm down. Let's calm down. Two against Arsenal, one against West Ham. None against Chelsea, none against Liverpool, none against City. Let's wait and see what he does when he plays Liverpool and Chelsea again. Moving on then to the Sunday games. Everton 2, sorry, West Ham 2, Everton 1. 
West Ham should have won this game far more comfortably. Mikel Antonio missed a couple of other good chances in this game, but they went 1-0 up through an Aaron Cresswell free kick. That will have hurt all Evertonians, considering he is a Liverpool fan. And Everton's response was really strange. They seemed to up their tempo and lose all shape. And they just started running around a lot without having any real purpose to what they were trying to do here. They did get their way back into the game in the second half. Mason Holgate's half volley took a big deflection, which brought it into the corner of the net. Holgate seemed unaware of the deflection, judging by how he celebrated, but it goes down as his goal. He should celebrate it however he wants. Jared Bowen put it 2-1 to West Ham five minutes later. Antonio played in by Fornals. His shot is saved by Pickford. Bowen follows up and he hits a shot that sort of bobbles and the bobble helps him because it lifts it over Michael Keane and into the back of the Everton net. Michael Keane, captain for the day, was sent off then on 65 minutes and that was basically all she wrote. West Ham saw the game out in fairly comfortable fashion. Dominic Calvert-Lewin had yet another poor performance. He has not looked the same at all. Now, whether it's that he's not fully committed to things, I don't want to suggest, but he was not good at all. How Frank Lampard can justify only making one substitution in that game is beyond me. I really don't understand it at all. You've got El Ghazi and Deli Ali and Solomon Rondon sitting on the bench. None of them can do anything for you. Like, Damari Gray had a really poor game. Richarlison wasn't great. Iwobi was okay. Dekure was awful. Mason Holgate playing as a six, did a, to be fair, did a decent job, but there wasn't anything you could have done to try and change that game, Frank. That's 11 games in charge for Frank Lampard. Seven defeats. Seven defeats. Um, and his six victories, sorry, his, his four victories, I should say. Um, a Leeds team coming apart at the seams, relegation contender at the time. A Newcastle team who... To the credit, had had a decent run of form, but relegation contender. They beat Brentford in the cup when Brentford couldn't have cared less, and they beat non-league Boreham Wood. That's who Frank has beaten thus far, and he's lost to everybody else. Just a simple reminder that Everton fans protested against the appointment of a real manager in order to secure the appointment of Frank Lampard, who is without question the worst manager in the division. And it's not close. It's not close. And Everton are 17th. They are three points clear of Watford, but they do have two games in hand, four clear of Burnley. They've played the same amount of games. They travel to Burnley on Wednesday night. That is a massive game. Everton win, they should be fine. But Burnley win, Everton are in major trouble. Even a draw and Everton are still going to be in bother because if you look at Everton's remaining games, Burnley, then Manchester United, then they play Crystal Palace, who just whumped them in the in the FA Cup, then they play Leicester, then Liverpool, then Chelsea, then Leicester again, then Brentford, and then 
Arsenal. With the way Brentford are playing, Brentford will beat them. Arsenal will beat them. Leicester should beat them twice. Chelsea should beat them. Liverpool will beat them. United, you just never know, but you'd assume they'll beat them. Crystal Palace, you'd assume they'll beat them. There's not many points left here for Everton. Not many points at all. And with this fella in charge, they don't look like they've got much of an idea of what's going on at all. Like, run through the results. They beat Brentford in his first game. They got all excited. Then Newcastle beat them comfortably. Then they beat Leeds. They got all excited again. Then they lost to Southampton comfortably. Then City beat them. Now, there was, that was a good performance. Probably the best performance under Lampard. They beat Boreham Wood. Then Spurs walloped them. Then Wolves beat them. They somehow beat Newcastle in a game they got completely outplayed in. They got walloped by Palace and they lose to West Ham. And what's more concerning than just the defeats is the indiscipline. That's three games in a row in the Premier League now. They've had a man sent off. So Michael Keane is out of the Burnley game. Uh, Alan is out of the Burnley game. And the injuries are mounting up for them as well. If we take a look at premierinjuries.com, Yerry Mina, still out. He won't be back for the Burnley game. Fabian Delph, still out. Keane suspended. Alan suspended. Seamus Coleman should be back for the, um, the Burnley game. Donny van der Beek is out for a while. Nathan Patterson is out for a while. Andre Gomes is out for a while. Tom Davies is done for the season. And Andros Townsend is done for the season. Like It, it is getting very, very bleak for Everton. Very, very bleak. Nearly as bleak as their financial reports that have come out recently. Uh, final game of the weekend then. Tottenham 5, Newcastle 1. Newcastle went one up. Fabian Schaar with a free kick from the edge of the area that Hugo Lloris really should have saved. Uh, ben Davies equalised on 43 minutes. A good cross from Youngman's son. A good header from Davies into halftime at 1-1. Newcastle feeling very confident, very buoyant. We come out in the second half and it's immediately 2-1 to Spurs. Harry Kane's cross was intended for Youngman's son. Son missed his kick and Matt Doherty appeared at the back post. Newcastle defence was asleep and he gets it home with a header. Then it's Son on 54 minutes. Really good work by Kulisevsky. Sets him up. He makes it 3-1. Emerson Royale Royal, uh, Royal makes it 4-1 on 63. Good work by Doherty down the left. Cuts back. Crosses. Uh, Matt Target. I don't know what you're doing there. Matt Target is ball side, but is too preoccupied with trying to wrestle with Emerson Royale when all he needs to do is seal off and clear the ball. Very, very simple. Rudimentary fullback play. Makes a mess of it. Royale scuffs at home. And then Stephen Bergvine, uh, set through by Lucas Mora, wraps it up on 83. And that's all she wrote. And Tottenham finished the weekend in fourth place. Now, Arsenal do have two games in hand. One of them is tonight, away to Crystal Palace. The other one is that game against Chelsea. But... Tottenham would rather be where they are than where Arsenal are because as we've seen with Spurs this year, when they had the games in hand and the opportunity to go into the top four, they messed it up. 
Would anyone bet against Arsenal messing it up? I don't think they would. Arsenal need to win tonight. Now, a draw puts them back in the top four, but they've still got to go to Tottenham. I think it's going to come down to Arsenal or Tottenham for fourth. And then I think it's West Ham United and West Ham, Manchester United and Wolves for six, seven, eight. So that's one Europa League spot and one Conference League spot because the other of Arsenal, Tottenham will get Europa League. Now, Tottenham have eight games left. They have Villa away, should win. Brighton home, should win. Brentford away will be difficult, but should win. Leicester home, should win. Liverpool away, I expect them to lose. Burnley at home should win. Norwich away should win. They also play Arsenal at home. And that game is obviously going to be very, very important. But that's their eight games left. That's a favourable run-in. The only game you'd look at there and say they're likely to lose is Liverpool away. If it comes down to the final week of the season, they have the advantage with Burnley and Norwich as their final two. For Arsenal, they've got 10 games left. So they've obviously got Crystal Palace tonight away. That's a difficult game. You could easily see Palace taking something there. Let's say Palace take a draw. And I think they'll be delighted. Uh, They should beat Brighton at home. They should beat Southampton away. But But Chelsea away? I expect them to lose. Manchester United at home, that one screams of a draw. West Ham away, that screams drop points as well to me. Leeds home, they should win. Newcastle away, they should win. Everton home, they will win. They've also got to play Spurs. So Spurs only have Liverpool and Arsenal to worry about. Arsenal have Chelsea, Manchester United, West Ham and Spurs. That's a much more difficult run-in. Even with their games in hand, that's a much more difficult run-in than what Tottenham have. Crystal Palace away is a difficult game for them as well. So we'll see how they do tonight. I expect them to win, but it it wouldn't surprise me at all if Palace took something from the game tonight. And if they take all three points, then that is the ball fairly firmly in Spurs' court with top four control in their own hands because Arsenal would have to beat them at home. Spurs could take a draw in that home game. As long as they win the rest of the games, you know Arsenal are going to drop points along the way with that running. That's a very, very difficult running. And part of it is because Arsenal have had that easier schedule. So now that's part of why Arsenal have been where they've been. But right now I make Spurs the favourites for top four. That is the nine games from the weekend. Like I say, tonight we have Crystal Palace at home to Arsenal. Palace are unbeaten in four in the league. They've also qualified for the semi-finals of the Champions League, or the Champions League, the FA Cup. Arsenal have been in good form. They've only won, or they've only lost one in their last five games, but they have had an easier run of things. Tonight's a test for them. We'll see how they react. 
Uh, we'll do the Garth Crooks team of the week before we take our break. Garth Crooks went for Jose Sa in goal. I can't really argue with that. He made a couple of good saves. Didn't have massive amounts to do, but, you know, there wasn't really a standout goalkeeping performance this weekend. Uh, he's picked Joe Gomez at right back, I assume because he got an assist. I assume that's why. Uh, not going to not gonna argue with it. Christian Romero was brilliant for Spurs. Absolutely brilliant. Can't fault it. And we know that no matter what's happening, Garth will watch Spurs. He's picked Craig Dawson. I really don't understand that one. He did not have a particularly good game yesterday. I, I thought he was the weak link in that West Ham back four. He's picked Aaron Cresswell because he scored. He's picked James Ward-Prowse because he scored. He's picked Christian Eriksen because he scored. He's picked Kevin De Bruyne because he scored. Uh, he's picked Janelt in his front three, despite the fact Janelt is a midfielder. Why not just pick a midfield four? Why stick with a 4-3-3 if you're going to pick a midfielder in your front three? Then he's gone for Kane and Sterling. Both of them had multiple assists. No, Kane, might have, Kane only had one assist, but he did create the sun goal with his pass for Kulosevsky. I don't have a problem with Kane being in the team. I don't have a problem with Sterling being in either because he played well. But Youngman's son should be in the team. Youngman's son was brilliant yesterday. And uh, unfortunately, one of those midfielders, most likely Ericsson, would have to make, miss out so that Janelt could drop back. Or Ward-Prowse, he didn't have a particularly good game, but scored a great free kick. One of them misses out, Janelt back and, and Son in. Uh, but Dawson should not be there. And Youngman's son should absolutely be in this team. Uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, we've got the World Cup draw was made on Friday. We've got some news and we've got the gossip. I'll see you in a sec. Right. Welcome back. So Friday after we recorded, the World Cup draw was made and we now know what the groups will be. So Group A will be host Qatar along with Ecuador, Senegal and the Netherlands. Senegal versus the Netherlands will be the opening game of the World Cup with Qatar versus Ecuador. Delay kickoff on the same day. I think Senegal and Netherlands are the two teams that get through from Group A. England got themselves their traditional favourable draw. One can only assume that they've hired the same company as Manchester City do to ensure these draws. England will take on Iran, United States of America, and the UEFA Path A winners, which will be either Wales or Scotland, Ukraine. So England will get through. And then I think it's between the USA and Wales, if it's Wales. I think if it's Scotland or Ukraine, I think I'd fancy the Americans more. But Bale and Ramsey just do weird things when they play for, for, for the international team that they don't ever do at club level anymore. So we'll go England, USA, while we don't know. The United States, if they had a real coach, I, I think it would help. Uh, I'm not a, a big fan of Bearhalter. I don't think he sets his team up 
in the best possible way to get the most out of the talent that he has. But there's a lot of talent in that American squad. I mean, they've got a good keeper in Zach Steffen, good fullbacks. Anthony Robinson is a really good Premier League proven fullback that we've seen play at a very high level. Serginho Dest is a quality right back, still young and still has some rawness to his game, but there's a lot of talent there. Centre-back is the area I have doubts. I, I, I like Chris Richards, who's at Hoffenheim on loan from Bayern Munich. I do like him. I'm not sure I like any of the other centre-back options. Uh, midfielders, plenty of good options. Tyler Adams, Eunice Musa, these are quality players. You've got Weston McKenney, who's a quality player. You've got... Claudio Reyna, son Gio Reyna can play in midfield. Brendan Aronson can play in midfield. In attack, you've got Ricardo Pepe, you've got Pulisic. Reyna can play in attack. You've got Timothy Weah. You've got Aronson who can play there. You've got Josh Sargent, Conrad De La Fuente, Daryl Dyke. There's a lot of talent in the squad. Matthew Hoppe is a good player. There's a lot of talent there. It's just a matter of harnessing it the right way and finding a, a proper pairing at centre-back. Um, that's the big need for them, is, is a centre-back who can really be the organiser and leader of that back four. I know they've got some experienced defenders in there. I just wouldn't be a big fan of anyone, of any of them. And I'm not sure how DeAndre Yedlin, it continues to be called up for the national team, let alone have 73 caps. Other than, I would say, Jose Altador, who's still somehow in the mix, um, he is the most capped player currently being involved in the United States men's national team, is DeAndre Yadlin with his 73 caps for a glorified sprinter. On to Group C, Argentina, Saudi Arabia, Mexico and Poland. The Argies will be strong favourites to qualify. I think it comes down to Mexico or Poland for the second spot. No disrespect to Saudi Arabia. I just don't think they're on the same level as the rest. Um, Group D, France, Denmark, Tunisia, and the winners of the intercontinental playoff. So what that will be, that is either Australia or the United Arab Emirates or Peru. So you would expect Australia to beat UAE. So it'll be them or Peru who will go into that group with France, Denmark, and Tunisia. I think I'm going to pick France and Denmark to come out of that group. Then you get Group E. It's Spain, it's Germany, it's Japan, and it's the winner of the other qualifier, which is Costa Rica versus the New Zealand national team. I fancy Costa Rica to win that one. So I'm going to say it's them. I still think Spain and Germany should come through as the top two in that group. Um, that's the toughest so far, Spain and Germany in one group. Uh, Belgium, Canada, Morocco and Croatia make up Group F. This might be the most well-balanced. You'd expect the two European, club, uh, European countries, Belgium and Croatia, to come through. But Morocco and Canada won't be easy to knock off. Group G is difficult. Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland and Cameroon. Brazil and Switzerland had the two most impressive qualifying campaigns, so I'd probably lean towards them. 
This one might be overall the most difficult group to pick. Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay, South Korea. So we've got Portugal. Can Cristiano flop at yet another World Cup? Nobody's ever flopped at five before, so maybe he's the man to do it. Ghana, with all their young talent, maybe they mature enough in time for this World Cup. Uruguay, it's the last hurrah for the great generation of the Uruguayan national team. It will be the last time we see Cavani and Suarez and Diego Godin at international, and Martin Caceres at an international tournament. So probably Muslera as well. I don't think he hangs around beyond this. This is probably their last, their last ride. So hopefully they can do well. I think Uruguay and Portugal are the teams most likely to come out of that group. And it's a nice group for Cristiano to do a bit of stat padding as well. There'll probably be some, some tap-ins and some penalty opportunities for him. But that's what the World Cup is. I think it's a decent draw. Uh, England got the easiest run, I would say. I think they got the easiest group. Um, I would say Spain and Germany will both feel a little bit put out that they're in the same group, but they should both qualify. I think Group H there, the last one, probably the most balanced top to bottom. Um, though the, the group with Switzerland and Serbia and Brazil will be a, a good group as well. The draw itself took far too long, began at 4 p.m., but the draw itself didn't begin till 5.30 and then dragged out endlessly. That's something they need to address. Nobody wants to spend two and a half hours watching a draw. Make it 20 minutes. Make it 20 minutes. No one cares about anything else. Make it 20 minutes. That's all we need. Right, on to the news. Mike Dean is obviously retiring as a referee. He's going to become uh, a VAR type of fellow. Uh, he has said that he in his career has received death threats to his home. That's uh, never good. But do read the piece with him on the BBC website. Uh, bad news coming out of the Netherlands. Louis van Hal has revealed that he has prostate cancer. He's currently the manager of the, of the Dutch national team. And he made the announcement on a Dutch TV program on Sunday night. Said he hadn't told his players this was the first time he was making it public. Uh, it sounds like it's quite an aggressive type of cancer, but he is undergoing treatment. And hopefully, hopefully that treatment will be successful. Uh, Louis van Gaal may not be everybody's cup of tea, but he is one of the great managers of the last 30 years. The work he did with Ajax, with Barca, with Bayern. He's just a great manager, a great manager. I, I understand that certain Manchester-based journalists aren't all that fond of him because he was quite brash and, you know, didn't really give them the type of insight they were used to, but nobody can deny what a good manager he is. Uh, interesting piece here from Nadam Anua on the BBC website as well about Everton and their away record. Um, I, look, I think, I think we all just need to accept that Everton are really, really poor. They're really poorly set up and their manager's a PE teacher. And that's probably an insult to PE teachers, but that's where I'm at with it. He's the worst manager in the league and there's absolutely nothing that anyone can say that's going to dissuade me from that. Name me the worst manager. Name me someone worse than Frank. 
because there's no argument to be made that Dean Smith is worse. Dean Smith has proven he's a good manager. Hodgson, I mean, I'm not a Hodgson fan, but Hodgson's clearly a better manager than Frank. Uh, Sean Dyche is clearly a substantially better manager. Uh, Jesse Marsh has proven himself to be a better manager. You know, Thomas Frank, people might might throw in, but I think he's shown he's a much better manager than Lampard. He got promoted from the championship, something Lampard failed to do. He's going to keep Brentford up, which might be something Lampard will fail to do. Like Lampard's best achievement is finishing fourth with Chelsea, a team that finished third the year before and won the Europa League. So he took them backwards, and that's his best achievement. Oh, but the transfer embargo. Pulisic, Kovacic, no transfer embargo. Mount, Abraham, Tamori. Four new players and Kovacic on a permanent deal. There's no, that's not a transfer embargo. It's not a transfer embargo at all. If you can add four new players to your squad, all of whom more than capable of playing at the Premier League level, and get Kovacic signed for 40 million, you don't have a transfer embargo. You've got, I don't know, a minor irritant. That's about it. Uh, let's do the gossip and we'll be done for today. Barcelona want to sign Arsenal and France forward Alex Lacazette on a free transfer in the summer when his contract expires. They apparently want to sign all players from England whose contracts are expiring in the summer. Villarreal's Pau Torres is back on the radar of Manchester United, who held talks with him last summer before signing Rafa Varane. Again, I just don't believe any rumour about Manchester United because they don't even know who their manager is going to be. Now, Pau Torres is a very good player and is an adaptable centre-back, but I just don't see him signing for Manchester United. Not when they've got an £80 million elephant in the room. Not a chance. And just on Barca with that Lacazette thing, you're in the biggest financial hole of any club in the world. Do you really think it's a good idea to sign more over 30s to big deals? Is that really a smart decision? Anyway, Manchester City are optimistic they can see off competition from Real Madrid to sign Erling Haaland this summer. They should be optimistic. They're Manchester City. They have all the money in the world. Speaking of all the money in the world, did, and did anyone know City are now pumping money to their players through Gucci? Is that just breaking news? Anyway, uh, Eric Ten Hag is the favourite to become the next Manchester United manager, and he says he hopes the Dutch club will understand if he decides to take the next step in his career. Well, I watched that interview. He didn't sound at all committal towards leaving or joining Manchester United or anything of the nature, but, you know... Newcastle want to sign Philippe Coutinho, currently on loan at Aston Villa. I think he's going to want to stay at Villa. Arsenal have undertaken extensive scouting of Victor Simeon and Latour Martinez. Do they not know what type of forward that they want? Because those are two very, very different types of forwards. Do, do they not know what they want? Do they, do they want a number nine? Or do they want sort of a false nine, nine and a half type? Because those two players wouldn't come up on the same profile no matter what parameters you put in, unless you put in, you know, scores more than 10 goals a season. Aston Villa are preparing to break their transfer record again this season, this summer, and are likely to spend more than 150 million on new signings. I'll believe that when I see it. 
I think they will spend. I don't believe they'll spend 150 million, not unless they've got a couple of relatively big outgoings planned. Uh, but they need to buy multiple players. A centre back has got to be your number one priority. It's got to be your number one priority. You've got to get Ezri Khan's a good partner. Thomas Tuchel is confident the club will be able to sort out a new contract for Antonio Rudiger. At this point, if Rudiger stays, I'm going to say it's purely because he didn't get an offer from anywhere else that was anywhere close to what he was asking for. Tottenham, who made an inquiry for Leeds winger Jack Harrison in January, are interested in signing him in the summer. I could see Jack Harrison fitting as a left wing back. Like a poor man's Perisic type, maybe. Spurs have agreed to a new contract with uh, Oliver Skip and is expected to be signed soon. Leeds are in pole position to sign Brendan Aronson with talks underway over a potential summer move from RB Salzburg. Makes sense considering they've been after him since January. They've got Jesse Marsh in now. You know, there's good connections there. Wolves manager Bruno Lage says the Midlands club will offer Ruben Neves a new deal but he expects other clubs to show interest in the 25-year-old this summer. I do expect he'll have a lot of interest. He's He is absolutely outstanding. Talks over a new West Ham contract for Thomas Suchek have been put on hold until the end of the season, despite interest from some of Europe's biggest clubs. I don't see any of Europe's biggest clubs signing Thomas Suchek. As much as I like him, I think he's a really good player. What big clubs are going to sign him? Like, look at the Premier League. He doesn't fit at City, doesn't fit at Liverpool, doesn't fit at Spurs, doesn't fit at Chelsea, doesn't fit at Arsenal, doesn't fit at United, doesn't fit at Real Madrid or Atletico Madrid or Barcelona or Sevilla or Bayern or Dortmund or PSG or Inter or AC or Napoli. It doesn't really fit anywhere. He's a a very high-end upper mid-table player who in the right setup can play in among the top clubs because he offers value with his goal-scoring ability on set pieces. But from a technical point of view, no, 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 no. Uh, Leeds and West Ham are among the clubs looking to bring Republic of Ireland midfielder Josh Cullen back to England from Anderlecht. Don't know how he's done with Anderlecht this season, but if there's Premier League clubs interested, he's obviously done quite well. 31 games played, 38 games played in all competitions, 30 last season. Like, he was obviously at West Ham for a long time, but he spent most of that time as a senior player out on loan. Bradford, I mean, they were in, what, League One? Uh... Bolton in the championship and then Charlton in League One in the championship. He hasn't played at the Premier League level. And with respect, the the Belgian league is largely championship level. So I'm not sure. He's obviously done well, though, to attract interest. So fair play. Bayern Munich have started contract talks over a new deal for Thomas Muller. I said before, I, I think he'll end up staying there for the rest of his career. Aston Villa will push for a £60 million move for Calvin Phillips this summer. I still think he'll have better offers. Leicester are considering cashing in on James Madison. 
exceptionally good player. I don't know where he goes, though. Like, he doesn't now fit at Spurs under Conte. There's no spot from at Arsenal. United have Bruno. So unless he's going to play from the left, which he can do, but it's not really the best use of him. I mean, maybe Liverpool has a right-sided number eight. Maybe. Get him in more advanced positions. Get him involved in the build-up play. He does prefer to play from the left. If, if he's going to play in a three, he likes to be on the left of that three. Don't really see him at City. I mean, Newcastle would have interest, but does he want to go to Newcastle? West Ham have a bunch of players in those kind of positions. He's better than them, but they're not going to go and spend that kind of money for you know, a player they already have the same type of player as when they have other needs. So I just, I don't know where he goes. Liverpool's the only one that really makes sense to me. And even at that, it's not an ideal fit. I'd certainly take him, though. Borussia Dortmund's Erling Haaland will will decide by the end of April if he will join Real Madrid, Barcelona or Manchester. Now, let me just say now, he will not be joining Barcelona. Um, Manchester United target Manuel Akanji wants to leave Borussia Dortmund and is considering a move to the Premier League away with him. I don't think Dortmund will miss him too much considering he has stagnated over the last two years. Barcelona are willing to meet, are unwilling to meet Antonio Rudiger's initial financial demands. This is what I'm saying. I, I don't see anyone agreeing to the type of money that he's asking for. Barcelona want to agree a contract extension for Ronald Arroyo, who has received an offer from Manchester United and has not taken kindly to the pursuit of Rudiger and Christensen. See, that's exactly it. Whatever you do, get Christensen, but get Arroyo signed up, and then that's your centre-back pairing moving forward, Christensen and Arroyo. Whatever you are going to offer Rudiger, just give it to Arroyo. He is going to be one of the best in the world. Gareth Bale is among one of a number of Real Madrid players who will be offloaded this summer. Yeah, he's out of contract, so he will definitely be going. Arsenal and Tottenham are interested in Natura Martinez, but Inter will only sell the Argentina striker if they receive a bid of more than £67.3 million. How about Romelu Lukaku? Straight swap. West Ham will reward Polish goalkeeper Lukas Fabianski with a new contract for next season. I would do that, but only as a backup, because I think you've got to get Ariola into the team, and I think he should be your long-term number one. Aston Villa will attempt to secure a permanent transfer for Anwar Al-Ghazi this summer, but Everton have no plans to sign the 26-year-old Netherlands winger. In fairness, he was signed by Benitez. He wasn't signed by uh, Lampard, and to be fair, I don't think he'll want to go play in the championship anyway. Derby County could bag a sizable fee for 15-year-old goalkeeper Jack Thompson. With Manchester City, Tottenham and Chelsea interested in the England Youth International, there'll be other clubs in for him as well. And I do feel like it's just... I mean, we know what's going on at Derby at the minute, but this is affecting their long-term future as well. That wonderful academy of theirs that's produced so many good players, they're just having to sell them all off at a young age just to keep the lights on. It's really That's going to have a massive effect on their future. Uh, Birmingham City are bracing themselves for interest 
from Premier League and European clubs in their England under-18 international midfielder, George Hall, the latest one off the production line at Brum. Very, very talented midfield player. Not quite to the level of... um, Not quite to the level of Jude Bellingham, but certainly going to have a good career. There's another one there, Jordan James, well worth consideration as well. Um, he's another England underage international. I think he was a Welsh underage international, uh, but he he switched sides to play for England. Um, Newcastle are lining up a £20 million offer for Robert Sanchez of Brighton and are also targeting Ishmael Assar. Uh, yeah, spend money badly, sign Robert Sanchez. Everton will let Alan leave in the summer despite the Brazilian having another year left in his contract. That's just to get rid of his wages, I'd imagine. Former Armenian midfielder Henrik Mkhitaryan is out of contract in the summer, but after an upturn in form, Roma are set to open talks over a new deal with him this week, according to the spoofer. First mention of the spoofer today. Shout out to Fabrizio. That's me for today, folks. Talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.